a welcome to a semi-irregular space-filling episode of the Garbage Fire Podcast Book Burning Edition. Your pod is hosted by Megan and Kelsey, who just cannot let teaching go. Um, this week we're going to talk about Harper Lee's masterpiece, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, so there will be some spoilers, I guess. I mean, whatever, whatever. Um, and I say it's a masterpiece because it is, and up until very recently, like two years ago or whatever, um, it was the only book that she had ever anyone knew that she had written mm-hmm. um, and now there's sort of a semi-sequel to it Ghost Out of Watchmen um, which sheds some very different light on some of the characters and some of the stuff from this one and I don't want to say it ruins it but it kind of it alters your perspective of some of the characters okay maybe we'll leave that for later yeah we can do that so we're going to talk about To Kill Mockingbird yeah so what is your entry point into this book to get us started I think the first time I read it it was probably about 12 um, oh shit yeah. well I'm not surprised Maybe 10. I don't know. I was very young the first time that I read it. Um, my mom gave it to me for my birthday one year, and I read it, and I loved it. Yeah, and I'm so smart. I have read it, I don't even know how many times. I've read it more times than I've watched Fast Five, so that's saying something. That's high praise. That, yes. I read it probably twice a year. Um, yeah. But then we read it in grade 10. I remember reading it in grade 10 English, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I read it in, in grade 10 English too and really liked it then. And then I stopped reading it for a while because we kind of analyzed it to death and it sort of killed it for me. Right. And then I vowed that when I started teaching, I would never teach it. And then the first school that I taught at, that was like the only option that I had for a grade 10 novel. So I was like, well, I guess I'm teaching to kill a mockingbird. And why did you vow never to do that? Because I didn't want to wreck it for kids. Like it had been kind of wrecked for me. Um, but now I've found a way to talk about it that doesn't, I don't think, wreck it for people. So how was it wrecked for you? Like what about it? Or how did they approach it? That it was just kind of hammered in, like, all of the... See this subtlety and this nuance here. Rather than letting us kind of experience the book on our own, I think it was very forced on us. Mm. And I don't teach like that, so I figured out a way to not do that while still making sure that my kids, like, see some of the things that I feel they need to see. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it was just... It was really hard for me to let that book go for a while because I loved it so much when I was a kid. And, like, reading it at 12 is quite young. Yeah. Oh, Even yeah. the characters in the book are, you know, scouts younger than that. Yeah. But there's very adult themes in here. What yeah, is, it's not a kid's book at all. No. What would you say is, is the age in which this book maybe is aimed for or, or should be read at? I think it's an adult book, to be honest. I really mm-hmm. do. Um, but I also, I don't subscribe to the notion that there's, like, kids' books and adult books no. or whatever. Really. Um, like, I was reading John Grisham novels when I was 10, so and part of that was reading level. But, like, my parents knew. But I knew. think there's still an appropriateness for... Yes. Especially some of the vocab in here. Yeah. I can understand. Can be problematic, yeah. right? If you don't know what that yeah. word means and all of a sudden you're repeating it. Yeah, and I think I think for something like this, I think the, the idea is, like, it's an adult... Like, it's definitely an adult book, but I always... My answer to that question is always the right time is whenever you read it. Yeah, that's, that's kind fair. of the especially for this book, especially this one, and because the the kids are so young, mm-hmm. I think it makes it a little bit more accessible for teenagers to read. Yeah. which is one of the reasons why we end up teaching it in school, right? Because it does have that accessibility. Because like at the beginning of the book, you know, your narrator is six, mm-hmm. and she's a child, and and so you kind of get that kid's view of things. But incredibly precocious. Oh, so precocious. She's wonderful. She is. She's great. So yeah, that, I, that's my answer to that question. The answer, like, when when's the best time to read a book like this? Whenever you read it. Mm-hmm. Okay, fair. And I think you just get different things out of it the longer you go before you read it, or the more times you read it. You just get different stuff out of it. So. Yeah. What about you? <laughs> Very different. My entry to this book was many attempts to watch the film, which is delightful, but only if you've read the book first. Yeah, because it the film misses it misses so a much. Lot. It misses so much, and we're going to talk about that uh, eventually about how I think the the book has a different purpose than what the film does in terms of which characters are trying to talk about or what the yeah. messages, etc., etc. Um, and you definitely need to read the book first, I believe. Yeah, because so. you miss you just miss some of those nuances, and there's just plot details in the movie that don't oh, make a lot of sense. Yeah, if you don't know the story. Absolutely. So we're going to talk about that at the very, very end of, of part three here, probably. Um, but So I picked it up on Wednesday because we decided very quickly that we were going to do this. <laughs> yep. And so I kind of had to rush rush through reading it in a very busy weekend that I had. But 
um, overall impressions is that the note that I wrote to myself afterwards was this book stuck to my ribs because it's delightful. Yeah. And not not in a very positive way. Nope. It's very heavy. It makes you think yeah. incredibly deeply about a lot of things. And there's many times where the characters are not sympathetic. Oh, very much so. Um, and we talk about that a lot when we end up talking about Gatsby, which we'll yes. do eventually. Um, but it, the, I think the difference of the characters in this versus the characters there are like these ones you kind of... Um, you do feel some sympathy for each of the characters at some point in time. Yes. But maybe on the whole, there's a lot of unsympathetic behaviors and, and things I, to deal with. Overall, I do appreciate that because that makes them feel human, right? Like, mm-hmm. many of the characters make poor choices and you're with them. And the thinking of that poor choice, the poor choice when it happens, and then eventually the lesson and the growth that they get from that poor choice. And so there's, a, you know, quite a sense of realness. Yeah, and the the characters feel very human. Except for Mrs. D. <laughs> so yeah, so Mrs. Bills, we'll talk about her later. She's awful. <laughs> but the characters do feel very human and you can you can look at their flaws and you can see their um you can see their their lumps ultimately and the things that they don't like about themselves and the things that other people don't like about themselves and, and you can see all those things and you can still appreciate their sort of essential humanness. And all of those things, like the truth about themselves and, and how people perceive them, seem to be public knowledge to everyone in this goddamn community. Yes. Yes, it's a <laughs> so fascinating thing. So do you want to talk thing. about that for setting? Yeah, so it's... It? Yeah, okay. So it's set in Alabama, um, in a fictional town called um, Maycomb. And um, our narrator is Scout Finch, and her real name is Jean Louise, but she hates going by her real name, so she's known as Scout. Um, and I think it works really well for a lot of a lot of reasons. Um, and so the the book opens, her first kind of description of setting is really interesting to me because it's not really true. Um, the very first thing she says is, Maycomb was an old town, but it was a tired old town when I first knew it. And so she's got this image um, as an adult retelling the story of her childhood. And I think that's an important distinction. Is yes. she's, a, she's a bit of an unreliable narrator because she's looking back on the events as they happened, as she remembers them. Um, but she still has a very strong attachment to this place. Well, um, and she's six. And she's six when all these things are going on, yeah. like when they start. And then she's an adult um, later, on, later yeah. on, which they refer to actually kind of in the very first um, page of the book when they talk about the events later on. But the way that she describes the setting is really interesting. Um, and John Green in his uh, Crash Course Literature videos about it, one of the things he talked about was how this book is a Southern Gothic novel because it's got a lot of those qualities of Gothic literature, mm-hmm. but it's set in the South. And one of the things I find really interesting about the setting is like, as Scout remembers it from her childhood memories, she looks at this town as this tired old place. Um, but the idea behind like this gothic whatever is that what's behind closed doors is the stuff that that's where the interesting things happen. Yeah. And so what Scout as a child sees, um, because the street that they grew up on, the her and her brother are the only two kids. There's no other children that live on that street. The only yeah. kids they encounter are at school. So her perception of things is very skewed. I think because of that, a little bit of that isolation. Um, but her understanding of the town is very flawed. Yes. Because she thinks of it as this really boring place where nothing goes on. Um, but there's a lot of stuff happening. And it, it fits in with that Southern Gothic theme. Mm-hmm. Because the important stuff goes on behind closed doors. Whether it's in someone else's house. Like in the Radley house or Miss Maudie's house. Or in their own house. Or in the kitchen or yeah. behind the door at school, like whatever. There's all of these places behind a fence. There's all of behind these things that are happening. A tree. Yeah. Outs or outside a courtroom, outside a jail cell. Like there's all well, of these and, things in the dark. happen where you can't see everything. Yeah. And it's fascinating that she thinks of it as a tired old town. And what I had underlined as well, just on the second page, is she says, but it was a time of vague optimism for some of the people. Macomb County had recently been told that it had nothing to fear but fear itself. Right, which is a really good like time setting too, because that yes. that comes that's an FDR um, thing. So we know that we're kind of in the '30s, kind of in mm-hmm. the middle of that of the depression. But it's and the a Dust great Bowl. foreshadowing for internal conflict yes. between these people yeah. and how the social dynamics are really going to come to a head here a number of different ways. You know, racially and gender, yeah, and class wise, yeah, absolutely. And how and how regardless of what one thinks about like class dynamics and class politics that race politics still 
almost trumps them. Trump everything, um, because you know, as as we get, we'll get into um, what ends up happening in the the second and third part of the book. What we learn about um, everybody knows how it should go, and it doesn't go that way. Yeah, and it's not surprising to any of the adults. No, but it's so surprising to the kids, and I think maybe that's one of the things about the book that really resonates with me is that as much as they've been allowed to grow up really quickly they're still just kids mm-hmm. and they have that like and you can wide see eye it, innocence yeah and you can see it in Jem I think Jem is the one who gets the most frustrated yes of things at the end yes. for you know a number of good reasons but Scout is the one who constantly needs a reinforcement and yes. reflection onto what's happening in the real world and explanation yeah because she just doesn't understand necessarily um kind of what's going on and part of it too is is she's been raised in this household um by her father who's considerably older like he's they talk about him later on like he's an old man he doesn't do anything that the other fathers do mm-hmm. he reads he walks to work he wears glasses and that apparently makes him like the oldest person in the world according yeah. to these kids um, he's always in a full suit he's always in a full suit and if you've seen the movie and you see like you can picture gregory peck and that's one of the reasons why the film holds up for so many people is because of him. He's fantastic. Um, but that to me, like, I, I've seen the movie a number of times too, and that to me is the image whenever I read it, I always think of Gregory Peck as yeah. Atticus. And I don't normally do that, but I can't get that idea out of my head. But he's very, he's distinguished and he's got a, a position of status in this community. So she's been raised by her father and then their housekeeper, Calpurnia, um, who doesn't live with them, right? And so right. there are times during the day when, before Scout goes to school, that, like, she doesn't have any real adult influence um and so her perception of things is just very very different and that family dynamic is very strange like because they call their father Atticus they don't call him yeah. dad or and whatever she, and she even describes him and his parenting as treated Jim and Scout with a courteous detachment yes which it feels like he almost treats them as little adults at times yes like it feels very much like they're 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 not his equals because they're children, mm-hmm. but they're kind of his equals in the way that he speaks to them and. Oh, he, he's never patronizing. To never them. one, never at all. Um, but like the way he disciplines them, which he just doesn't have that ability to really be like a, a parent. Yeah. Because um, he doesn't want to. And part of it, I think, is he doesn't know how. Because we find out a little bit later that that Scout's mom died when she was when Scout was two, mm-hmm. and so when we meet her she's six and so she's had four years already of no mother and then by the time the book ends she's eight and so it becomes six years and we find she's got lots of very positive female influences in her life um but they're still missing in that like core family unit that yeah a direct influence and i think that plays a role in sort of how she responds to the events of the book because i think she tries to do what she thinks her father wants her to do and maybe not what necessarily even comes natural to her. Yes. She really has a tough time with doing it. Like, she fights everybody. Yes. And even when he tells her not to. Yeah. Does it anyway. It doesn't happen, right? But there's something interesting about about Scout and about their family and and how at times they're incredibly unconventional, but it seems like they are one of the most respected families in town. Yes, and I think part of that is because, like, Atticus, as a lawyer, um, his job is to defend people. Yes. And he doesn't treat people as cases. He treats people as people. Yes. And there's this beautiful bit where um, Scout asks him if they're poor. Mm-hmm. And Atticus says that everybody, they're poor. They're just not as poor as other people. Um, and But he doesn't get paid in money, for the most part, for the work that he does. He gets paid in meat and grain and... Nuts. Nuts. <laughs> you know, pecans, yeah. And, yeah. And, but it's an interesting thing because he accepts that as the payment that people can afford mm-hmm. um, and you learn a lot about sort of like family I guess family composition and, and what they feel is important based on how they deal with those interactions yeah um, and so Atticus has this role model figure like he's phenomenal because he's trying his best to teach them the ways of the adult world and he's always composed always he never loses it no except later in the book there's that one time in the courtroom when Calpurnia comes to tell him that his kids are missing and they've been in the balcony all day long yeah and he loses it a little bit and that is literally the only time mm-hmm. because as much as he treats them with the courteous detachment he loves them very much 
Um, he just doesn't know necessarily how to display and show that. And at times, he definitely has fear for them. Oh, yes. Because of... Oh, yeah. Because they... As much as they respect him, like he talks... Uh, Scout talks at the start about how they had boundaries about where they were supposed to go, and they were never tempted to break them. But yet, they still... Like this whole Boo Radley business. Like he tells them, do not yeah. provoke, do not get involved, let it go, let it go. But I think if and it, it's obsessive to them for three years. Yeah, right? but I think I think if Dill had never showed up, they never would have done it. Mm. Right? I think they needed that external influence yeah. to get to that point. Because I don't know if they would have ever um, done the thing. But then again, if Boo Radley had never come out, then it'd be a very different story. It would be that we would be talking about. So I suppose there's that. Um, Do you want to go talking about Dill then? We could introduce Jem, maybe, just okay, real quick. Sure. So, Skull's brother, his name is Jem. Jeremy. Mm-hmm. Jeremy Atticus Finch. Yes. Um, and that name holds a lot of weight. It does. Um, for a lot of reasons. And there's Jem says this wonderful thing later on in the book. He talks about how he's going to be a gentleman just like his father. Mm-hmm. But he also, at one point, it says that he doesn't want to be anything like his father. There's... And he's got very conflicting um, emotions about all of it. Um, but Jem's definitely the sensitive one of the bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, and very, very quick to understand social dynamics mm-hmm. and racial dyma- dynamics and class dynamics between all of the different people, like especially when they're in um, the, the court. Yeah. It seems like he knows exactly what his dad is doing yeah. and how he's maybe caught someone in a lie. Yeah, and he's and he's paying attention and then and then at the end of it all he's the one who's the most broken yeah. by what's happened. Um, because he knows in his heart what should have happened. Um, and so and Scout isn't quite old enough to understand yet. No. Um, and then she has to have it explained to her. And so so Gem's an interesting character because when they're young, before Scout goes to school, they're like the best of friends. They are. And then Scout goes into grade one to first grade, and he's in fifth grade, and they're not the best of friends anymore. He's like, don't talk to me at school, leave me alone, don't bother me. Um, and I find that really interesting. Like, I don't have siblings, so I don't know what the di- that dynamic is like. Oh, it's But I believe accurate. that that would be true. <laughs> yeah. But I just, it's really fascinating that, like, once they go home again, they're basically best friends. It's just, like, during that school day, there has to be this division between yeah. the two of them, because she's, like, essentially in the baby class. Well, and I think for Jem, because they live on that street where the only other kid is his sister and then Dill, yeah. you know, for two months in the summer, he he needs a separation of identity away from them, right? Mm-hmm. And it makes sense that in school that's who he could And be. it sounds like in the summertime they don't see their friends. Like, Dill's, exactly. Jem doesn't see his school friends in the summertime. Yeah. And so... It's just Dill and it's just Scout. Yeah. And so so we have, we have Jem, we have Atticus, and we have Scout, and then their neighbor comes and joins them and his name is Charles Baker Harris mm-hmm. and he's just wonderful he's so cute he says I'm little but I'm old <laughs> I thought same Dill <laughs> same so we get his name yeah his nickname is Dill uh, doesn't really know why he just goes by Dill doesn't know who his father is nope um so he's a bastard child and uh, he's got a stepfather and a mother who don't particularly care much for him no nope. doesn't seem like um and he's from Meridian, Mississippi, is he not? He is. Um, which is a little ways away, I suppose. And, and I mean, for a seven-year-old traveling by himself, that's a pretty long way. Um, and so he comes to stay with his aunt, who lives next door to the Finches. Would we call him a pathological liar? Um, or is that too negative of a connotation? Yeah, I think that's maybe too negative. He's a, he's a story inventor. Okay. Let's go with that. Because he's not... I don't know. I think he just tells the stories that he tells because he needs to feel... Connected, connected to someone, to someone. and I think it's easier for him to just say stuff than mm-hmm. it is to acknowledge the truth. Um, so he joins them. He he shows up all of a sudden, and they've never met him before. He's staying with his aunt, who lives next door to the Finches, and they become very good friends because it's another kid. Yes. That's, that is essentially the reason they are friends. Which is such like, don't you miss that about being a kid? Yes. And you're put together with another kid, and it was just like, oh, we're friends now. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't it's true. happen with the dogs. Oh God, no! Well, you gotta like do a small talk <laughs> and get to know them, and then you find yeah. out you hate them, and you're just like, oh, when will this end? I know. Um, and so yeah, there's like that childlike wonder, and I think Dill represents. I mean, he's from the outside, but he represents that kind of innocence that even Scout and Jem don't. Because mm-hmm. um, like he's had some more different life experiences and stuff, but really all he wants is just a hug. <laughs> I think that's really all he needs. I, know. I think Scout needs a hug too, but for different reasons. 
Um, Scout needs a hug and then, like, a strong slap on the butt. Yes. <laughs> big time. Yes. Um, and Jem just needs a hug. Yeah. Yeah. He's cute. But he is the one where they get the idea of making Boo Radley come out. Um, yeah. So, Boo Radley is a really interesting character. Because all we know about him until, like, the very end mm-hmm. is the myth of Boo Radley. Yes. And so he becomes, he's a ghost, essentially, and no one's ever seen him. Um, The kids know that at some point in time, he may or may not have stabbed his father in the leg with a pair of scissors, and that's all they know. Yes. And then the old Mr. Radley died, and then young Mr. Radley, uh, Nathan, Boo's brother, like, took over the house. Mm -hmm. And they see Mr. Nathan walking- um, To and from. To and from the the store, and, like, the bank- like, mm-hmm. twice a week, and that is it. No one ever comes in the house. No one ever leaves the house. It's all locked up. It's quiet. Yeah. And so, and that's a really interesting thing. Again, there's things happening behind those closed doors that they don't know about. Mm-hmm. And so Dill gets this idea, uh, once he finds out about Boo Radley, that they should try and make him come outside. Mm-hmm. Why, in thinking about that decision, do you think, why is a child making that up? But I'm not sure how I feel about it. About making Boo Radley come outside? Yeah. I think as a kid, you kind of... It's very audacious. Yeah. But I also think as a kid, like, you, you, it's like a challenge, right? And you mm. See if you can see if you can make it happen. See if you can if you can do something that's going to get him to come outside. That's true. And Jim and Dill like to compete with each other. Yeah. Of who is, you know, the most brave and the most daring. And yeah. Scout likes to do that, but isn't really included because she's a baby. And she's a girl. Yeah. Um, and is, she hates... She hates hair. both of those things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> She just wants to be not a baby and also probably not a female. Like, she's just done with it. Yep, yep, yep. Um, Until later on. And then that's an interesting shift that that she undergoes. But I don't know. I think think the competition aspect, and I think also, like, I think Dill recognizes the adoration that Scout has for her brother. Mm -hmm. Because she really does. I mean, they don't, they fight and scrap like siblings do, but, like, she adores her brother. Mm -hmm. And Dill has decided that he's in love with Scout at seven years old, right? Which is in that they're going to get married and make a baby someday. Like, they talk about this very openly and this is going to happen. And I think for Dill, I think it's just a competition for Scout's attention. Okay. In a lot of ways. Um, And also, I think he's trying to see if he can push Jem to. To do something brave. Mm-hmm. You know? Um, to add to Dill's own storytelling? I think that could be part of it, yeah. To, so that he has someone to go back home to Meridian and tell his friends about. Do you think Dill has friends in Meridian? I think he has people at school who think he's entertaining. Mm. But I don't know if he has friends. Yeah. I think he has friends the way that Scout has friends at school. Right. Which is, she knows of people. And she can get along with them. Yeah. For the time being. As, she, as Yeah, as long as she has to, and then she doesn't have to mm-hmm. do it anymore. Um, but doesn't that say something about the Finches? Because it seems like all of them are like that. Like, Atticus doesn't have friends. Jem doesn't really have friends. Well, Jem doesn't have friends that we see, right? And that's the right. difference. And, and Scout doesn't know what's happened with Jem at school mm-hmm. up until she's gone. And then even then, he's in the fifth grade. You know what I mean? So, like, all those things that happen, and, like, they don't play together at recess. Like, so she doesn't actually know. Right. Um, but I, I think that maybe... I think maybe Atticus's um, concern for his children extends into not letting them have, like, friends from outside as well. Okay. I think that might be part of it as well. Hmm. Um, because of where they live and, you know, proximity to... Well, no, he doesn't want his kids going to town by themselves. And right. It doesn't feel like it's that far, but I think it's still far, right? And so there's there's that. And I think... I mean, I think Atticus's only real friend... Or is Miss Maudie. Is Miss Maudie. Um, and she's wonderful. Mm-hmm. She is. And she, uh, but she doesn't have any friends either. She has her circle of ladies or whatever, but they're not friends. Right. They just get together because that's what's expected of them. Um, that they get together and, you know, for tea and things. Mm-hmm. But Miss Maudie spends all her time wearing pants, gardening, right? So she's already bucking. Uh, a lot of social conventions. A lot of the yeah. social conventions. And then, so sometimes when, when Gem and Dill are off playing and Scout goes to see Miss Maudie, that's like some of her best times is when she can go have some time. Is Miss Maddie Miss Maddie isn't the one who bakes. Yes. That is I think so. Or is that Miss Stephanie? Maybe it's Miss Stephanie. It doesn't matter. Um she but she no, she's the one who gardens and she occasionally gives um 
Scout her favorite snack, isn't it? Her that gives her like is it, or is that Calpurnia that gives her like the butter and sugar sandwich? Oh, that's Calpurnia. Is that Calpurnia? And yeah. That's like, and that's their little thing. So Scout has these these little influences because she is the outsider in her family. Yeah. And then Dill shows up and she's an outsider between the two of them or the three of them because she's not a boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she has these little moments where she kind of interacts with all of these other characters, and she's the catalyst for a lot of really interesting things that happen mm-hmm. in the book. Um, so like when they. When they finally do make Boo Radley come outside before they have actually realized that they've made Boo Radley come outside. Um, with Jem and his pants that are, like, folded on the fence. I know. Um, she's the one who dares him. Like, who pushes him and pushes him and pushes him to go and touch the house. Mm-hmm. Because he won't do it and he won't do it. And she's like, yeah, come on, you big wimp. And then he does it. Just probably to shut her up. Probably. But she's the catalyst for a lot of really interesting events. Um... And I suppose it makes sense that she's our first person narrator, but she's the she's kind of the fabric of the that holds all that together. And she has she has even though she's quite young, she has this wisdom that's really interesting. Yes. So when she goes to school and she hates going to school because her teacher is fucking awful. Oh, Miss Caroline. Miss Caroline, the worst. She's terrible. And she Ms. She deserved everything that happened to her. She does, but Miss Caroline really doesn't understand anything about anything but no. mostly about the children in her class mm-hmm. so she gets uh this boy walter cunningham into a conflict because walter cunningham doesn't have any food right yeah so she's going and to he doesn't have any money either n- and no money to get food so miss caroline wants to give walter some food some money to go get some food so that he can eat and walter refuses and miss caroline takes that as an affront to her generosity without understanding yes. that the cunninghams don't accept charity and it's up to Scout, and all the other kids look to Scout as the one, because she's coming to conflict with Miss Caroline all day, so they're yeah. like, if anyone's going to say it, it's going to be you, pal. Yeah. And she's the one who has to explain that that's not how they work, that's not how this town works. Yeah, and that's not how this family works, and so mm-hmm. he's not he's not being sassy, and he's not, you know, he's not being rude, but he can't pay you back, and so he won't take your money. Mm-hmm. He's got his own moral code that yeah. he's adhering to. That's been instilled in him by his father. Yes. Which comes out very interestingly later on, too. Um, and so then Jem ends up inviting Walter for lunch. at, um, And it's really interesting because Scout understands Walter's predicament at school monetarily. And that she knows, understands it because the Cunninghams have this reputation of not mm-hmm. taking charity. But also because Atticus has helped Walter's father with some legal issues. Um, so Jem ends up inviting Walter for lunch. And yes. he first says no. And then he decides he's going to come. And so they go for lunch. And Walter pours syrup, syrup. all yeah. over his food. And it feel I don't remember what they eat, but I feel like it's like syrup on the potatoes. Like, there's just syrup on literally everything. Yep. And Scout loses her mind. She does. So in a very short span of time, she's gone from understanding his situation and being very empathetic to... Not understanding at all. Not understanding at all. And then Calpurnia just lays into her. Yeah. Um, about manners and how Walter's your guest and you just let him do what he wants because he is your guest and you've been raised better than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and she gets a spot on the bum. And she has to and eat. she deserves. And she does deserve and she has to eat her lunch in the kitchen. She's not allowed to eat out in the dining room. She mm-hmm. has to eat her lunch in the kitchen. And she does it very grudgingly and she's very angry about it. Um, but she's had a bad day. She has. Like a really bad day. She's been told that she's not supposed to read at home anymore with her father. She's been told that she's not supposed to know how to do cursive writing. Um, and so she's basically supposed to just unlearn everything that she's learned. <laughs> Which, like, made me <laughs> insane. It's like, are you kidding yeah. me? You've got a precocious, essentially for that age, gifted oh, child so in your gifted. classroom. And you're telling her to stop reading? Yeah. Because she might be smarter than you. Oh, she's a hundred percent smarter than Miss Caroline. Like that—that that is definitely the problem. Miss Caroline, oh my god. Um, and we're also introduced in that first sequence in school to the Yule family. We are. Um, Which is ooh. They are—they're special. Um, they're very special. The the Yule family is—they live out past the dump, and I think that's very symbolic of what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and they come to school on the first day, and then the the truant officer just leaves them alone. Just, for the rest of the just year. for the rest of the year, yeah. and so Burris Ewell probably should be about fifth grade based on his size, and he's, he's a come, huge boy coming he's back to the first boy. grade, and he's got like a cootie that like crawls yes. out of his hair and like across his face or whatever, and Miss Caroline just loses it. Yeah. Um, and then little Chuck Little is one of uh, Scout's classmates, and he helps Miss Caroline kind of through her 
trauma of seeing this bug crawl across this boy's face. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting for Scout being in this classroom setting with all of these kids because she knows all these things about their families probably through her father. Yeah. Um, but she's never really been around them before. No. I mean, probably at church. But we don't ever but see that. But not significant. No, and we don't ever see that, so we, we can't, we don't know for sure. Uh, and so it's really interesting just kind of watching her navigate these social mores that she has to, and she's so bad at it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she just goes home and she complains to Atticus about how she wasn't allowed to read, and she's writing all wrong and all this kind of stuff, and Atticus makes her promise that they'll keep reading and then just won't tell Miss Caroline. Yeah. And that's one of his better... As long as she capitulates that it's absolutely necessary for her to go to school. Yes, she has to go to school and she can't stay home. Um, but that's one of Atticus's best parenting decisions. Yeah. Is to recognize her autonomy and say, like, yes, you can still do the things that you love. We just need to make sure that you don't get in trouble. But it's also like, haha, sucker, that's oh, actually exactly. going to school and, like, doing your homework. Yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> and then we'll read. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're very interesting, and there's something very compelling about a scout's interactions at that age, because she does, as we've said, have this wisdom, but then also these social mistakes. Yeah, and she just she's doesn't just know too young it. to understand. But it's weird that there's those significant gaps right to know inherently what this family is inside and out and understand how they operate but then not know don't make fun of your guests at the dinner table yes that's like a very childlike but you also wonder too like maybe they don't have very many dinner guests yes exactly i mean i would i would assume just based on what we know about them that like the extent of their dinner guests have been like uncle jack if he ever comes maybe aunt alexandra if she ever comes yeah and scott would never do anything bad with aunt alexandra around and maybe miss maudie um, and, and, and I feel like whatever behavior she might exhibit around Miss Maudie would probably be forgiven for the most part. Um, and probably aren't. And she wouldn't have that outburst. Yes, no. About pouring syrup because Miss Maudie wouldn't pour syrup all over her food. No. Either. That's the other difference. She's a proper lady. Well, she is and she's not. She wears pants, man. She oh, wears she's pants. She's a goddamn hero. She is. She really, really Although is. Although in the South, wearing pants. <laughs> well, I know. <laughs> That'd be hot. I know. But she has to because of her gardening. Yes. Um, and so so we have all these really interesting characters that the way that they all come together kind of, um, you know, it's a very character-driven it is. story at the beginning. And then it's very plot-driven. Afterwards. After and that's why one. in the first half of the book, I've put, oh my god, this is so slow. Because chapter after chapter after chapter, you're just introduced to these different conflicts yeah. between these different groups of people in this town. It's very Dickensian in that way. Yes, without without seeing what the overall purpose of mm-hmm. knowing those things are, mm-hmm. and it comes to a head like in a flurry in eight chapters in the end. So yes. It's, it is quite frustrating at the start. Yeah, because the first 11 chapters are very slow. Yes. Um, there's an, And nothing really happens, but I think that's also the point. It still fits with that narrative of Maycomb being this like tired old town, yeah. and nothing really happens. Like The first really big um, event that happens is the fire. The, the fire, mm-hmm. um, and Miss Maudie's house goes up in flames. Do we know why? It no, I think I think it was probably just like Freak. the stove flew or whatever, right? And it just yeah. yeah. I mean, it's nothing. It's nothing. It just happens, and it it's brings not out suspicious. Or no, anything. it just brings out the whole town, and and Miss Maudie's very um, unconcerned. It seems like because she she even says to Scout that she's thought about burning on that house uh, on her own. Just so she can get the insurance money, but she didn't think she to make a bigger garden. To yeah. make a bigger garden, exactly, um, because she's got that. Those are her priorities. Um, but like, this event happens, and it's in the winter time, and that's a significant thing because they've also had snow. Yes. Um, and so you get this snowfall, but they've never seen snow before, mm-hmm. and even some of the adults like have never seen snow because of where they live. And so they go and they make this snowman. Um, which is just incredible. Mm-hmm. It's just absolutely incredible. And they take all this mud, and then they cover it with this sheen of snow, and then it, like freeze. Basically, they want to make it into an ice man, so it stays. Um, and they steal Miss Maudie's clippers and her hat, mm-hmm. and she calls it a hermaphrodite. But Scout mishears it and calls it a morphodite, and that's yep. like one of my favorite things because <laughs> um, she just doesn't she just doesn't know what it is. Um, and again, that shows her inexperience and her, her naivety because she just doesn't know what the word is. And so she yeah. just repeats what she thinks that she heard. And so they make this snowman. Um, and uh, then Miss Maudie's house, like that night, is on fire. 
and the heat from the flames is so hot. Miss Maudie lives across the street from them, and the heat from the flames is so hot that it melts their snowman. And they're just devastated. And they're devastated, but they're standing out there, and Atticus tells them not to, uh, not not to move, and so they don't. So they stand down by the Radley place. It's freezing. Freezing cold. And then when it's all over, Atticus says to them, I thought I told you to stay put. And they're like, we did. Mm-hmm. And then he asks them where they get this, got this blanket from. And they're both just baffled. Mm-hmm. They don't remember it happening. They don't remember anyone putting a blanket around them. And it's lovingly around their shoulders yeah. so they don't freeze. Yeah. Oh, well, everyone's trying to save Miss Monty's and make sure that it doesn't spread, spread to, to the their house or stuff. the other yeah. house. And, and it's just this beautiful little thing. And then the next day, Miss Maudie says to Scout, she says, I heard you had a visitor last night. Because, I mean, I, and I think Atticus is kind of amused by them trying to make Boo Radley come out. Because he knew, I think he knows that they're doing it, and I think the little part of him is amused by it. Because he sees the, like, childlike, you know. He's really pissed at them. Well, yeah. When, even when they have, like, their Their Boo Radley plays (laughs) out front. And even if he's walking by, he can understand what it's about. Mm -hmm. And I think he, doesn't he say, like, leave that poor family alone? He does. But I think at the same time, like, I think he understands why they're doing it and what the curiosity is. Um, so he's tickled that what they want so much happened, and then, and then they don't know anything it. about it. So like you can imagine that he told Miss Maudie like right, right away, mm-hmm. you know, once they figured out. What do you think Atticus's feelings about Boo? Well, I think, or is that too much into part three? I think it's too much into part three because okay. I don't want to spoil it. But I think when I think when we when you hear what Atticus has to say to Boo Bradley, um, mm-hmm. it, it you know what he thinks of him. And it's, it's very clear. Um, but yeah, I don't want to spoil it. Okay. In we'll case people that. are following along or not or whatever, and I don't want to wreck it. Because we'll the end of that, it, that's just so wonderful. From mm-hmm. like that moment until the end of the book is just one of my favorite things in anything I've ever read. It's gorgeous. So I don't want to, I don't want to spoil that. But um, we have, after that, we have the increasing conflict that's leading us to part two. Yeah. The, the other thing that happens that I think before we want to talk about that okay. um, is... Tim Johnson, the doc, because um, there's this this bit where where Scout and Jim are convinced that their their father is useless and feeble. Yes. And then all of a sudden they learn that he's actually a real good shot with a rifle, and he kicks his glasses off, mm-hmm. um, lose, and he breaks them, I think, and he just shoots this rabid dog. One shot. One shot, and that's his nickname from when he was a kid, and they had no idea. Mm-hmm. And part of that I think is because Atticus doesn't want to talk about those things, and part of it is because they never bothered to ask. Because they look at him and they see this old man in comparison to... And they constantly call him old. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I mean, he is. I mean, Scout's six years old and Atticus is like probably 50. Close to 50. Uh, yeah. yeah. No, I think he's older than that because Miss Maudie says she's the same age as Uncle Jack. Roughly. They're roughly the same age and Uncle Jack is five years younger than Atticus. And I can't remember... But there's that conversation about how oh, Atticus yeah, is old, right. and Miss Maudie says, well, if you think that I'm old and I'm younger than him, and I think she's pretty close to 50 herself. I think you're right, yeah. So I think Atticus is a little bit over 50. And so that is fairly old for a for father a of a yeah. six-year-old. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a 10-year-old. Like, that is pretty old. And so, like, I get that, mm-hmm. why they have that uh, opinion of him, but it's just really funny to me that, like, they learn this thing about their father, and they learn that he's capable of something that they didn't know he was capable of. And that little moment is very compelling as foreshadowing for what happens later Mm -hmm. Um, because he has this like very steely resolve that allows him to get through um, some fairly traumatic things that happen later on it is and I I find that very interesting because Scout's very physical Atticus is very intellectual yes so for her and Jem to see him take down the dog Mm-hmm. is like a shock to them, right? Absolutely. And I think that's because on a number of levels, those three people don't understand each other very much. Not at all. Even they're no. living in the same house and Atticus is trying to teach them very I think so. moral life lessons all the time. But there's this disconnect. And that's why I think it's crucial that Miss Monty's the one that tells them, if your father's anything, he's civilized in his heart. Yes. Because what sets him apart from everyone is what's in his heart. Yes. And I think uh, I think on, on some level, I think Atticus and Scout understand each other better than Jem mm-hmm. and Atticus do. And I think, and better than Jem and Scout do. I think that there's that. And I don't know if it's the father-daughter thing. 
Um, but I, I feel like they understand each other better within that family dynamic than mm-hmm. Jem does with anyone else. Um, and I think part of it is because, like, I don't think Jem's a dummy. No. But he's not as smart as Scout. And I think Atticus identifies a little bit better with her because of that. Because she is quite intellectual herself. I think Jem for sure idolizes yes. Atticus. I wonder, I've, I've, I wonder, and we don't know, but I wonder if Jem takes after their mother more. Like, in terms of his... Because he had experience, experience with, her. with her. And Scout says, like... Sometimes when I bring her up, Jim gets really quiet and wants to be alone for a while. And yeah, whereas and she doesn't know, her. right? She doesn't know because she was so young. And so I wonder if some of his emotional reactions to things are because of what he what he got from his mother rather than what he got from. his And father. there's always for Jim a focus on like fear for the father. Mm-hmm. Right? He's always afraid. He always needs to see what Dad is doing. Like yeah, Dad, Atticus. Mm-hmm. Um. Which is really interesting. Where Scout's Scout doesn't not like need that. to know. No. She doesn't need to. She wants to know knowledge. She and she wants to see what he's doing, but it's not a need. No. Um, she just wants to she wants to know all the things. And when she the sees him, she just wants to be near him. Yes. Whereas Jem wants to watch. Mm-hmm. Which is very interesting. And Scout but it's interesting because Scout's like that with her father, but she's not like that with other people. She with lots of other people she just wants to watch. Yeah. And she'll be part of it when she needs to be part of it. But or she's she a very doesn't want to watch it all. Or she's a but she's a very good detached observer. Mm-hmm. Um But the interesting things, like interesting conversations, again going back to that like idea of that Southern Gothic theme, like interesting stuff happens inside their house. Mm-hmm. Very interesting conversations. Um Atticus speaks to his children like they're small adults. And mm-hmm. so and that's a very interesting choice that he makes. I don't know if it's because he doesn't know um, how to talk to them like kids or if he just chooses to do so because it's easier for him that way. Possibly, but I think it's also that he believes that they're capable of of more than perhaps society does, and that's really relevant in part two, obviously. Um, But, yeah, there's just something really interesting about that. And then it manifests itself in in a very difficult way. At the end of part one, mm-hmm. and Atticus's parenting, where he, yeah, he makes, I'm not a fan of this he, I understand it, but I don't like it. Like I get what he's doing, but I don't like it. And so, this is the this is the point in the book where it's incredibly traumatic. It is, like Jem's traumatized by this experience. He is traumatized by it, um, but at the same time, and I, I don't know if this justifies it, but I think it hardens him a little bit for what comes later. In a good way, ah, you know, I, I, it, it doesn't it doesn't justify that. it, but I think I think it hardens him in, in a good way for what happens later. So, um, there's a an old woman in town who, as it turns out, had a morphine addiction. Yes, and she was coming off the morphine, and Atticus, as a lawyer, is involved in some questionable cases at times, as mm-hmm. one is, and so there's a case, and we don't hear many details of it until part two. Um, but everyone, all the adults in town know what's going on. The kids don't really know yet. Yes. Um, the adults know. And so the case is, uh, very simply that a black man named Tom Robinson is accused of raping and beating, um, Mayelle Ewell, mm-hmm. uh, who's 19 years old, um, when he was helping her, um, bust up like an old wardrobe. Yes. That's, that's the trial. The basic and so, premise. And yeah. so he's, he's accused of this and Atticus is defending him and Atticus wasn't chosen to defend him. Atticus chose to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that is that like, um, that moral code that he, code that he holds. Yeah. And cause how can he walk in this world with his head up and look at his children? Had he said no. Had yes. he said no. And he says that and it's a very admirable thing. Yes. And, and he's I, very clear about why it is because there's a lot of pushback from the community and from kids about why he's doing this and they call him some very terrible things and the kids very terrible things and scout gets in fights with people at school and with her cousin because they they call atticus um some very terrible things which we will not repeat no um you can read the book if you don't want if you want to know what that is um which is a really interesting teaching point by the way because kids get really shocked by it when they read it yes and they're like why isn't why isn't this censored well because that's how it was written and this is the thing we need to talk about and why that's how they painful, spoke. Yeah, this is yeah. a painful term and this is why. Um, so that's the, the background of this case and there's a, a neighbor in town, Mrs. DuBose, and she's a recovering morphine addict and she's very old. Um, yep. And she calls Atticus 
some terrible things mm-hmm. as the children are walking by. Ugh, that's the worst. She's part. awful. She's she's terrible she's, too. She's a terrible, terrible person. Um, and she she says some stuff, and then Jem um deadheads all of her camellia flowers. Like a goddamn hero he is. Um, and he gets in trouble for it. Mm-hmm. And so his punishment is to read to Mrs. DeVos. Yeah. For like two hours a day. Every day. Mm-hmm. Except for Sundays. Um, and Scout has to go with him. Because she was there. At and the end, doesn't he say, Scout, you don't have to go? Yes. But Scout... I don't was, think Scout should have went at all. I don't all. think she should have either, but she wasn't going to miss it out. So there she is. And I know. So she, you know how she is. So she goes, and she so and of course because she goes, we get this part of the story, because she's our narrator, um, and she goes, and Mrs. Devos just says awful things about their father and about their family and about um, what they're going to become when they get older mm-hmm. because of these choices that Atticus is making, and over the course of this session, these sessions, it's like a month or whatever. Yeah, for a month. Um, she gets progressively worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they get to start leaving earlier and earlier because she falls asleep sooner. Mm-hmm. Um, and then she ultimately passes away. And she leaves Jem. This is awful. It's so awful. She leaves him a flower, just like the ones that he ruined. Yep. And he has a tantrum, and rightfully so, and throws the box with his flower down, and he calls her a hell devil. Mm-hmm. Which for like a ten year old is a pretty hard term. And uh, he says, Why can't she leave me alone? And he's just traumatized by it. Mm-hmm. And sobs. And but I think and this is an interesting thing, I think that event brings him and Atticus closer together. Why? After, after because I think I think Jim is smarter than we give him credit for, and I think he understands what the object of it was. Right, because he throws everything into the fire but keeps the flower. Yes, so he understands. He gets it. It's just such a cruel way to teach that lesson. It totally is. Especially because, like, we we get the explanation that she was trying to, you know, kick her addiction. So she could die in peace. So she could die in peace and not, you know... Not be beholden. To anyone or anything. And... Yeah. And so I wonder... Kills her. And I, I wonder if her giving him that flower is her way of, like, releasing him. Rather than him saying, why can't she leave me alone? I wonder if that was it. Like, that was her way of, of releasing him from her life. And also releasing her from his. You know what I mean? Like... It's still... Oh, it's cruel. It's, it's awful. awful. It is. It's so awful. Um, but... And he has this tantrum and Scout is sort of very... She's a distant observer on this because she doesn't quite understand it. Mm-hmm. Because she's not the one... For whom the flower was intended. Um, but she sees it. And I think in that moment, like, I'm not a big fan of Jem, just generally speaking, throughout the book. But I think in that moment, Scout feels really bad for him. Mm-hmm. Because she sees how this has affected him. And I think, and it's an interesting thing, but I think it kind of galvanizes their little family unit a little bit. Yeah, it's mostly because nothing changes. Like, and Jem sits there, touching the flower <coughs> petals. Atticus goes on reading the paper. Scout sits there watching everyone. Yeah, as as they always do. As they always do. Um, and the only thing that's different now is now he has that flower petal. Yeah. Whereas everything else is just kind of the same. Um, but the so the the foreshadowing that sort of exists throughout this first part that starts right at the very beginning, um, and we're gonna we'll get to this when we get into part two and part three. But the very beginning. Um, the very first line is, when he was nearly 13, my brother Jem got his arm badly broken at the elbow. Mm-hmm. And then the, the narrative starts with Jem being 10. So we go back in time from that just framing one line. device. Just one line. Just and one then line. we go back in time from this framing device. But the thing that happens with the fire and Boo Bradley coming out, and the thing that happens with... Um, Mrs. DuBose. Mrs. DuBose, the thing that happens with Tim Johnson, the dog, and everybody kind of shutting up in their houses and letting someone else look after it. Like, there's a whole bunch of things that happen that are kind of leading us towards this trial and how this is going to play out. Yes. Um, but before we get there, and I think we should talk about this too for this part, is how Boo Bradley leaves them 
Logos in this novel, in this yes, tree, and it's delightful. He does, and it is delightful, and they're really not quite sure what to make of these little gifts. No, there's like a pocket watch, and there's two little crude soapstone figures, and there's some gum, and I think there's two nickels. Yeah, and the gum. Yeah. The gum, like, blows their mind. Yeah. I was like, man, they are poor. They're very poor, because the Radleys are not poor. Yeah, is, why is that? I'm not sure, but the, you don't get the impression that they're poor. No. They just don't ever come out. Um, except for Mr. Nathan, and they say hello because they're polite, right? Yeah. And if you're wondering why we're calling people this, that's what Scout calls them. It's like Mr. Who, by their first names. And yeah. Their like, that's just how it goes. Which bugs me when Jem turns 12, which has how chapter 12 starts, so it's a little bit of a spoiler. But now he's called Mr. Jem by everyone. Yeah. And that's super, super bugged me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's coming from Calpurnia. Yes, and also because uh, Scout will be missed until she's married. Yes. And so, yeah, let's smash that patriarchy a little bit. Yeah. But, um. I'm doing it in her denim overalls. Yeah. Oh, man. With her. <laughs> missing Monty's well, pants. Yeah, Miss Monty's <laughs> pants. Yeah, and uh, Scout and her missing teeth. And her <laughs> yeah. fists of fury. Oh, um, those fists of fury. I only beat them up twice. <laughs> <laughs> no big deal. Um, but what's really interesting with those these objects that Boo Radley leaves them is that, like, it's his way of talking to them. And they don't know who's leaving them, and that's the interesting thing. They're, they're, I think they suspect, but they never actually come out and say it. Because I think I, I've always had the feeling that I feel like if they come out and say that it is Boo Radley leaving these things in the tree, that it'll stop. Well, and I also think that that would be an insertion of the author rather than what the kids are thinking. True. Right. But you got to think that, like, Jem's not done. Neither one of them are stupid. And look where the tree is, and you know what I mean? Um, and then when, when Mr. Nathan, like, fills the, the hole with cement. It's devastating. To devastating them. to these kids. Do you think that Mr. Nathan knew? Yes. Yeah. Or he was just annoyed by the fact that they were at the in tree on sparkly tree. all the time. Yeah. yeah. Either or. It doesn't really matter. Well, and they stay at the tree and, like, swing on it and yeah. stare at their house for hours on end. Like, yeah. creepiest fucking kids in the world. <laughs> Get out of here, very, creepy that's, that's very true. They are pretty creepy. Creepy children of the corn looking kids. <laughs> they are not. They are too. They are not. They're in overalls. Scout is an awful short mushroom cut haircut. <laughs> Gems is always in his face. Dill's just a weird looking motherfucker. <laughs> he really is. He's tiny. He's little, but he's old. Um... <laughs> But it's just the object, and so like the cover of the book that I have, and I tweeted out a picture on our on our uh, Twitter account, and we'll make sure we put it in our blog post. The cover of the the book that I have has a silhouette of a mockingbird, um, a little tiny like sliver of a of a crescent moon, and then a pocket watch and a ball of string mm-hmm. in the knot of a tree. And if you've never read the book, you're like, I don't understand this cover at all, but it totally makes sense. Yes, because um, those are some very important things. The watch is a very important thing. Yes. Um, and I just found that whole interaction. So they've made Boo Radley come out of his house a number of times. They just don't know it. Because when, like, Joe, the gem goes to, like, touch the house and then his pants rip. Yeah. And he has to go back and get them. And his pants, he doesn't tell Scout right away. Until later on. Tells yeah. her later that his pants were, like, folded on the fence. Yes. As if somebody left them there for him. And that someone could only have been Boo Radley. Yes. I'm sure of it. Um, and then he puts the stuff in the tree. He gives them the blanket at the fire. And then nothing really happens. And they don't really see him for quite some time and then he comes out at the end um, yeah. in what is maybe my favorite thing about Boo Bradley coming out of his house. Yeah, it's utterly beautiful. Because Gem never sees him. I know. And it's so great. I know. Because he doesn't deserve He's to. just robbed of it. Yeah, yeah it's absolutely. wonderful. Um, I don't have anything more to say about the first part. Do you have anything more to say? Um, n- no. Do you have any I think, about the first part? Um, I think they're mostly for... Oh yeah, just thinking about... Uh, thinking about the, the text as a whole, um, Harper Lee wrote this based on some semi-autobiographical events. Her dad, A.C. Lee, was a lawyer. He represented um, some African Americans that um, were perhaps dealt some injustice. Uh, but Dill is based on her childhood friend, Truman Capote. Yes, and there was some always some speculation for quite some time that he actually had written this book because she'd only ever written the one book. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you've ever read, like, In Cold Blood or whatever, it's so there's different. no possible way. No, it's that so different. He might have had some input. Possibly. As, like, hey, remember when we did this? How can yeah. I write about it? You know, but I don't... The voice is so unique that it couldn't have been. Yeah. Absolutely, but that's such a cool thing that like Harper Lee, one of one of the most celebrated authors in like American history, mm-hmm. who wrote one book, 
her best friend as a kid was Truman Capote. I know. Like, that's just, that's crazy. And it's so funny, too, how, like, if you were Truman Capote, how would you feel about how your character was still? Oh, God, I'd be so mad about it. <laughs> but I also think, but didn't, like, Capote, like, kind of reinvent himself, though? Oh, 100%. Right? And so yeah, maybe yeah. that's how he was. Like, maybe, you know, as a child, I maybe that's it. why he reinvented himself. I get it. Because he's this weird he's little... Annoying. Weird little tiny person. Absolutely talkative. And just really needed some love. Yeah. You know? And maybe that explains a lot about Capote, just if you want to look at it that way. Which I think is super funny, because wasn't Truman Capote's name Truman Persons? I believe so. And Dill yeah. goes by a different name, too? Yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe just little... Little things like that. Little shout-outs there, too. Um, but, and I think that... They, I mean, there are, like, yeah, autobiographical elements in this. Um, but Scout is not Harper Lee. No. And the voice is not Harper Lee's voice. Mm-mm. And that's a, an important thing to remember. For for you, when thinking about this book, do you think it's important that Harper Lee is drawing from some sort of, you know, historical thing that she lived through? Not necessarily, these are the facts of the case. But is that important to you for the legitimacy of the narrative or, or even the using of those words? That I feel like if this book was written today, yes, by an author today, it would be much more problematic. I think so too. I think, and I, I don't know if she necessarily had to live this experience that's in the book, but I think no. just having lived at the time where that at the was time, a thing, yes, I think yes, yes. that's I think, what I mean. I think you have to have that. Um, I think you have to have. I mean, the book was published in 1960, and mm-hmm. it's not like people weren't using those those terms then she might have even done that right and I think that's something that's interesting too because you look at Scout as this very enlightened character and she kind of sees past people and their differences in a lot of ways um but I think kids are like that overall I think kids are like that overall too but she's also being written by uh, a southern woman who maybe held some of those prejudices herself Mm -hmm. right and so I mean I don't know but I think that's an interesting thing that we look at at Scout and Atticus to be kind of these like um, these these figures that are above it all, but they're still part of that fabric of that community. And so I think that I th- so I think that Harper Lee, having lived in a community like this and dealt having her father dealt with some of the same things and mm-hmm. her experiencing some of those things, I think lends legitimacy to her voice yes. as the author. And I think it it allows for her to say those things without it coming across as disingenuous or something for shock value. Do you also think that her real-life attitude towards, you know, kind of being a hermit and not participating in a very public way with her work? She lived the goddamn dream. She did. But does that that add to considering this book a masterpiece? Because she wasn't, you know, perhaps out there stumping it or... I think it's very similar to, like... Uh, Catcher in the Rye and like yeah. the Salinger effect where he That's only wrote like six things um, and like you can't make a movie out of Catcher in the Rye because his estate like holds the rights to it in perpetuity and then they're never going to let it go like and all those kind of things I think it's yeah. very similar in that respect um, that are these at the same time as Catcher in the Rye yeah they're kind of all yeah they're kind of at the same time ish Catcher's okay. probably because I'm wondering if someone learned from someone else or is that know. just two independent decisions I think they're probably just two independent things Salinger mm-hmm. was just a recluse like he yeah. just but I think it's the same kind of thing, and I think her living that lifestyle, she didn't want fame. No. She was given money to, to, to take a year off of work, essentially, and write this book. Mm-hmm. And that's what she did. And then, I mean, the, this edition that I have was printed in 1982, or 1987, is this cover. Yeah. Um, Mine's more modern. And, I mean, I don't know. This It's been published, according to the blurb on the back, um... With over 15 million copies in print and translated into 10 languages. And I'm sure since since 1987, when this book jacket oh, was printed, it's even more. Um, and I think the fact that she didn't go out and, like you said, stump for the book and do yeah. book tours and talk about it ever, I think lends more legitimacy to what she's saying. Because I think she's trying to tell a story. Um, and I think that's the whole point. She's just trying to tell a story. Right. She's not trying to get famous from it she's not trying to um see like look how good of a person i am it's none of that she's just mm-hmm. this is the story i want to tell and by all means like as as a novel i don't think it's absolutely perfect nope like there are especially moments in the first 11 chapters where it is incredibly slow and at times seems yes. lagging and purposeless yes so in, in thinking about that like i i often wonder what 
if she would have done other novels, how would they have compared to this one? With more experience at writing and not necessarily at writing, but writing novels. Um, I feel that... Like, would they have addressed the same things thematically? Because clearly this was something that... You have to write from what you know. Yes. And yeah. she studied law, right? Didn't yeah, she have I a law so. career? I believe so, yeah. And she just stayed out of the public eye. Um, it's interesting that you asked that question about, like, sort of what... Um, about, you know, her aim here. Because she, in 1995, HarperCollins wanted a new foreword. For the book by the author. Yeah. And this is, I'll, we'll put a link to this New York Times article because it's fascinating. Um, and Harper Lee was just like, don't, she's like, no, you just want to sell my books. <laughs> like, that's really, and she knew, like, she knew that was the. But she would benefit from that, would she? Well, she would, but she was benefiting anyway. Like, True. I mean, by this, you know, 15 million copies in print by 1987. Right? They just, they that's just wanted lot. another edition. Yeah. So, um, uh. What she did, did ultimately, so in this new forward in 1995, because it was for the 35th anniversary um, of the book, um, she says here to her agent in a letter, she says, please spare Mockingbird an introduction. As a reader, I loathe introductions. To novels, I associate introductions with long-gone authors and works that are being brought back into print after decades of internment. Although Mockingbird will be 33 this year, it has never been out of print, and I am still alive, although very quiet. Um, internment is such an interesting word. word there. Um, and so she, that was what she said to her agent. Um, and it um, absolutely does not need an introduction. It doesn't. But this is what she said. Uh, introductions inhibit pleasure. They kill the joy of anticipation. They frustrate curiosity. Mm-hmm. The only good thing about introductions is that in some cases they delay the dose to come. Mockingbird still says what it has to say. It has managed to survive the years without preamble. Love it. Um, that's badass. Oh, well, it's absolutely true. It is. You don't need an introduction on a book ever. No. You maybe like a critical edition of a book, sure. But put it at the end. Yeah, or have a foreword as an introduction. I don't particularly care. Yeah. But frame it as a critical edition, and then have a certain angle to that discussion. Yes, and that's yeah. fine. But just an introduction to a new edition, that introduction is just so incisive and it's so it's so good and it's so very, very um, interesting. Like, if you look even at the epigraph of the novel, mm-hmm. just being like, lawyers, I suppose, were children once. Yeah. Like... It tells you everything you need to know about her. Yeah, right there. Right there. Um, and, and her, like, her dedication is to her father. Mm-hmm. Right, for Mr. Lee and Alice, in consideration of love and affection. That's it. That's it. We talk beautiful. about like detachment, right? Oh yes, the courteous detachments. <laughs> I mean, maybe she is the epitome of it, right I there. Know. Um, but yeah, it's just. And I was I, the copy of the book that I have says at the top here, and obviously this is a publisher decision. It says the timeless classic of growing up and the human dignity that unites us all. And I kind of get the feeling from everything I know about Harper Lee that she probably hated that. Yep. Because I don't think she wrote a book with the intention of becoming famous, and I don't think she wrote a book with the intention of you know, writing something that belongs in, like, the American canon of literature. No. At all. I think she just wrote a story that she felt Well, and I think she just wanted to honor her father, too, because uh, for the film, when Gregory Peck, she was on the film set, she was very involved with it. When he came on set for the first time and they shot their first scene, she cried because he reminded him so much of her father. Yeah. Like, there's something that she's trying to honor here. Yeah. And I think she probably did a fine job of this. Yes, that to her everything else is noise. Yeah. Right? And muddies it or perhaps. Yeah. And so... Diminishes it in some way. Maybe we'll talk when we... um, We can talk about it now just because it makes more sense maybe because we're talking about this. So a couple years ago when they released Ghost at a Watchman, um, it felt like it was very much under duress. That like she'd written... Like I don't want to call it a sequel because it's not quite a sequel. It's a companion to this. Okay. And it deals with the characters but in a different setting and later on and... So, in the first chapter of this book, when Scout mentions that Jem got his arm broken, badly broken at the elbow, the next paragraph says, When enough years have gone by to enable us to look back on them, we sometimes discuss the events leading to his accident. And in my mind, that's Ghost Out of Watchmen. But it's not really, it's not really a sequel. It's just, here's more of the story. Okay. Um, but the book was released under duress, and I don't know if she really intended for it to ever see the light of day. Um, and she died very and she quickly died after. Right 
and I want it like nine months after. Yes, or and so like I don't know if that if the release of the novel had anything to do with that. But also like how could you pump more money out of this? Woman? I know. There I are know. like when I went to the bookstore, there were probably ten editions of this novel. Yes, and I have like eight. <laughs> Because I love it so much. I just have one, and I chose the one that looks like me. <laughs> it's it's true. It's, it, it is, yeah. I remember that. I remember that mushroom cut. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I think the I think the novel has a lot, and I think if if you've listened to us this far and you've read it, we would love to know what you have to say mm-hmm. about this first part. Um, because there's a lot going on here. And we there's know it's a lot, boring. and and up to this point, honestly, I did not like the book. No, and she was part, really struggling. I was really frustrated with it because part without part two, part one doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No. But once you've gotten into part two, you're like, oh, which oh, is so interesting oh. that she actually divides it into two parts. Yes, because part one essentially. Is the introduction. Yes, the whole, yeah, in my edition, it's 112 pages. It's all the context. Yeah, and then the story starts. Yeah, mine's 130 pages. So then the story starts in part two. The story actually starts in part two. Which is a really interesting choice. Mm -hmm. But But I think coming from someone in the South, in order to understand this town and everything that needs to come, you really need to understand. You have to, you have to understand the social norms in the community, and you have to understand the, the poverty that exists in the community, and you have to understand like mm-hmm. the social interactions that people have, and and these kids observing this adult world. And what makes them separate? And yeah, and what makes them separate and different, and yeah. and how the class structure works, and how the racial structures work, and yeah. and all of this. Um, and so I think you under I think you get to that point. Um, through this, the way that this, that this first part is told. Um, and I think that it matters. Because, what, yeah, when part two starts, it just is right into... Right into the trial and the conflict yeah. and everything. And Jem changing and going through puberty and, like... Yeah. Which Scout doesn't understand no. just yet. And she's, like, intrigued and terrified. Oh, as always, husband called me during the podcast. <laughs> Um, like intrigued and terrified yeah. by it at the same time. Yeah. It's really funny. Um, and so, yeah, so I think we should stop there yeah. and get into part two. Um, so thanks for listening and, uh, we'll have this, we'll have this up again. Uh, we'll have part two ready to go for you for next week. Mm-hmm.